This past Sunday, I was at Wilson Creek near Franklin, Tennessee, and that's where Elder Graham Sims, who's been with us several times as a pastor, and Brother Brother Neil and Brother Luke had both gone there separate times and just didn't know the other had been and just bragged and said, this this place is awesome, got to go. And I was like, where is it? And one of them said, Wilson Creek. Well, the next one came back and said, this place is awesome, you got to go, where is it? Wilson Creek. I was like, i got to get to this place. And Brother John Morgan had been there. And I can just tell you this, it far exceeded any expectations that I had, and they did not overestimate what a great place it is. So if you're ever in the Franklin, Tennessee area and get a chance to visit with Brother Graham, Sister Amber, the wonderful, warm, friendly, loving church body there, I encourage you to do so. We had a wonderful time. They, got, they received three members over the weekend. Uh, one guy who'd been coming there for about 20 years, and he went ahead and joined this past weekend. It was awesome. They had a great and – and I told them, I said, look, I've been in, involved in at least two revivals in my life. And, and I can't tell you all the ins and outs of everything that's in it, most importantly the Spirit of God, but I know what it feels like. <laughs> I know what revival feels like. And I told him, I said, whatever you're doing there at Wilson Creek, you need to keep doing it <laughs> because you're, you're having revival. And I say to you uh, here at Bethlehem, whatever you're doing here at Bethlehem, you need to keep doing it because the Lord has blessed before. He, he has blessed now. I expect Him to bless in the future. Let's stay hungry for it. Praise God. So, along that line, if you would turn to John, the first chapter, I really went back and forth over whether, what to speak on tonight. Uh, we've been doing kind of a regular series on Wednesday nights, and I just, just couldn't get my mind satisfied on speaking on that. I'm not saying I've left that series, but I think because of the events of the last few weeks have really been on my heart and on my mind, I've been thinking a lot more, I guess, about Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And I've been trying to focus my mind on Him. And so I think that's where this comes from tonight. And I want to speak to you on this subject that the Lamb is the Lion. Or you could say it this way, the Lion is the Lamb. And we're going to begin in John, the first chapter. And I want to pick up in verse 28 where we read that John was baptizing in an area called Bethabara. And let's go ahead and get the text. John 1 and 28. These things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming with him and saith, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now let's read on. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh the man which is preferred before me, for he was before me, and I knew him not. And John says, But that he should be made manifest to Israel, therefore am I come baptizing with water. The reason John the Baptist was doing this new thing of baptizing was for one purpose. It was to identify the Son of God. Now, there was great joy and great glory in all the people that were confessing and repenting. I mean, he baptized thousands, but there's only one that was identified as the Messiah, as the Son of God. And John says, I bear record that when I baptized him... Verse 32, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but that he sent me to, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptized with the Holy Ghost. You want to understand the initial reason for baptism because it was a new thing. 
Today, it's not a new thing. People just, it's kind of a casual thing. Well, you know, it's just something that's been around for 2,000 years. But it was a brand new thing. And a lot of people thought it was weird and strange. And if you think about it, it still is kind of weird and strange. It's still a new thing in terms of what has gone on in the world. Only in this dispensation of time has this occurred. And he says, I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Now, verse 35, again, the next day after, the very next day, John stood and two of his disciples and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, that's two times in two days that John the Baptist has identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. And I would love for anyone to check me out on this because I think I'm, I'm certain on this, that this is the first place where John identifies him as the Lamb of God. When he came down into the water and was baptized, he didn't say, Behold the Lamb of God. And whenever he baptized him, he didn't say that. He said some other things, but I believe you'll find with a reading of the different Gospels that this is the first time where he says, Behold the Lamb of God. So why? Why not? Behold the King of Kings. Or why not behold the Lord of Lords? Or behold the Messiah? Why not that? Now, he does say some other things like Son of God and so forth. But he specifically identifies him as the Lamb of God. Now, if you know where we are in terms of where we're reading, if you know about the geography, if you've studied that, and I've actually preached on that several years ago, and I'm sure all of you remember it in great detail. But anyway, if you, if you know anything about the geography and the time frame, okay, this is Bethabara, which would have been probably north of the area where Jesus was baptized. So if you want to back up, I don't know, maybe 45 days or so, a lot has happened in 45 to 50 days. Okay, 45 or so days before is when Jesus has walked 60 miles from Galilee down south towards Jerusalem, down the Jordan River to the area where John baptized him in Matthew 3, book of Luke, book of Mark. You see, Jesus walked all that way to be baptized. And so John baptizes him. And by the way, I've told you this before. I fully believe that it was in the exact spot where Joshua crossed the Jordan River whenever God parted the Jordan and the people of Israel came across at Jericho. I believe it was the exact spot where those priests put the stones in the bottom of the river and up on the other side when they came across. That's, you know, it doesn't say that in the scripture. That's just what I believe. I'll throw that in for free. But Jesus is baptized in that area near Jericho. And so then it says for 40 days, he's caught off into the wilderness. The spirit took him out into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. So it's somewhere near there. And now Jesus has reappeared after his baptism and after the 40 days in the wilderness. And now that's when John sees him after he has returned. And he says, behold, the lamb of God. So he goes from the Jericho area which is north of the Dead Sea and right where, near where Jordan goes on down into the Dead Sea. And you see him in the Jericho area and then he goes into the wilderness and then he comes into Bethabara, which I believe would be a little further north. And from there, Jesus travels on up into Bethsaida, which was the place where uh, Peter and James and John and those guys were stationed or living on the Sea of Galilee and fishing. Bethsaida means house of fish or fishing house. So understand what's going on here. Forty or so days before Jesus had been baptized, now he's back and the, the Messiah is on the move. The Son of God, the Lamb, is on the move. And he, he hasn't preached his first public ser, uh, sermon yet. He's only maybe gathered just a, just a tiny handful of disciples. As a matter of fact, it may be that the guys you read about in verse 38, 39, and 40 are the first disciples that begin to follow him. And that's uh, Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, and another guy. 
So this is all new. This is all fresh. This is the beginning of his public ministry. The first thing he did, if you notice, was be baptized. And now here he is just walking along. He's not going, hey, John, look at me. He's walking along and John says, behold, the Lamb of God. You see, John has identified him. Of course, he knew him already. He was a cousin to John. But he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Now I want you to look in Revelation. Keep your finger there in John 1. But look in Revelation 5. And I want you to notice this language. By the way, this is John the... Uh, John the Baptist is the one that baptized Jesus. John the Apostle is the one that's writing the book of John. And John the Apostle is also writing the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. So look at Revelation 5, and we're going to pick up right there in verse 3, where it appears that there is no one worthy or able to take the book that's under consideration, which I believe is the book of history. There's no one able to take that book and open it. No one there in heaven has the authority to open that book. And it says, verse 3, No man in heaven and earth under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And John wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Now, there, obviously there will be no tears in heaven. You've got to remember that John was still, in whatever form he was in, he was still a man, he was still a sinner, And God had allowed him to be caught up into the heavens and see this incredible pageant, if you'll let me put it that way, that God puts on in front of him. And one of the one scene of the pageant is that this book is brought forth that has seven seals on it and nobody can open it. And John begins to weep (laughs) that. Let me just tell you. You say, well, I can't identify with that. Yes, you can. You can identify with that when you turn on Fox and CNN and MSNBC and you look at what's going on in the world. It just makes you go, oh, good grief. You feel like everything's out of control, that there's no way any of this can be settled down, that, that this person says, I've got authority. That person says they've got authority. This party says, I've got a." You have felt the way that John has felt. You have wept much because there appears to be no man that can get this thing under control. Well, I hope you have the same experience that John has. Because one of the elders says unto him, stop your weeping, weep not. Because there is one who has authority and who has the power and who has control of the book of time and the book of history. Now think very carefully with me. This does not mean that God in his pureness of character and his pureness and freedom from sin himself is manipulating or using sinful men or evil men to do his will. He doesn't have to because he's in control of the whole book. You see, God never once has manipulated or used wicked men to accomplish his will. He doesn't have to. He's too sovereign. And those and the dear ones that love the Lord that say that out in the religious world just don't understand the character of God. See, that they brought God down into a little box and said, well, this is how he operates. We figured him out. God cannot be figured out. But there's one thing you can be certain of, the God that cannot be figured out. And that is, he will not touch sin. He will not use sin. He will not use wicked men. He will overrule them, overcome them, and he will providentially be three or four steps ahead of them. Now, that's a different character right there. That means God doesn't get his hands dirty with the wickedness of man. The only time you'll ever see God touching sin, yes, I'm sure you've guessed it, was on the cross 2,000 years ago whenever sin touched Him. And whenever He became sin, He was made to be sin who knew no sin and He paid for your sins and they're over with. See? 
But he says, weep not for the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. You see poor old John standing there who's had a rough day. He's had a rough weeks and months. He's been exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He's a prisoner. He's, on, he's in solitary confinement on an island all by himself. And poor old fella, here he is caught up into the heavens. He thinks all his worries and crying's over with. And he's crying because there's nobody powerful enough to open this book. And so you see him drying his eyes there and say, And he turns and he looks. It says, I beheld. Remember what John said? He said, behold, John the Baptist said, behold, the Lamb of God. And here it says that John, the apostle, beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne, in the midst of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. Now, wait a minute. The elders said, weep not for the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And John turns and he looks and he sees a lamb as it has been slain, as it had been slain. So which is it? Is it a lion or is it a lamb? The answer is yes. It is a lion and it is a lamb. It is the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now why? The question becomes why a lion and why a lamb? Let's do just a little survey of history. I want you to think about, and I preached on this recently on this My Servant series, but I want you to think about the numbers of different types of appearances that God has made to man. He appeared to Job as a tornado. He appeared to Abraham in a couple different ways. He, he appeared uh, as Jehovah. Uh, he appeared as, uh, excuse me, he appeared as the Almighty. He appeared in the form, I believe, as Melchizedek. He appeared in the form of a ram in the bush. Whenever he was substituted for Isaac, the ram was substituted. What about Moses? Moses saw the Lord in the form of a burning bush. David saw the Lord in some different ways. Isaiah saw the Lord as a king, high and lifted up on the throne. You remember Eliakim, that my servant that we considered there in the my servant series? He saw the Lord as a nail. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar saw the Lord as the fourth man in the fire who would not be burned. Zerubbabel, you remember he was the one that was the builder? And he saw the the Lord as a branch, capital B-R-A-N-C-H. But here, John the Baptist says, behold the Lamb of God. And John the Apostle beholds a lamb as it had been slain. Why? A lamb. Well, you have to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden to figure that one out. All the way back to the days whenever Adam brought that colossal loss. I spoke to you a couple weeks ago on depravity, the total depravity, and Jesus has wrecked depravity. He has totaled depravity. (laughs) But we lost something there that we cannot ever fully measure. And so ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since the loss of fellowship with God, walking around and talking with God, can you imagine? You cannot imagine, and I can't either. Nobody, I don't believe, understood the loss. Aside from God, I don't think anybody could understand that loss except for Adam. Because he's the one that walked in fellowship with God and visited with God and looked at him face to face and had conversations with God and walked in the cool of the day. And then for 930 years... He's out. He's an outcast. And the Lord set, Genesis 3, it says the Lord set flaming, uh, cherubims with flaming swords at the entrance of the Garden of Eden. So every time Adam passed by there, he could look and see that and think, if I could just get back in there. If there was just a way to get back in the Garden of Eden there, maybe I could have fellowship with God again. But it wasn't possible because of Adam's sin. So you see Adam's son, Abel. You see Cain also bringing forth the sacrifice. But you see the sacrifice that Abel brought forth. What was it? It was a lamb. The firstlings of the flock. So you get a little bit of a hint there. Now, 
I'm just going to tell you what I believe. I can't prove this for sure, but I believe that whenever God clothed Adam and Eve, in order for them to get the coats of skins to clothe them, you know, an animal's not just going to unzip its its, its uh, skin and say, "Here, you can have it, Lord." You have to kill an animal in order to get his skin. Now, I believe it was a lamb. That's just my personal belief. I won't charge anything for that. But some animal had to die in order to clothe Adam and Eve. And so Abel brings forth a lamb in an effort to connect with God. Are y'all with me? Of course, Cain brought forth what he wanted to bring forth, his own doing, his own, uh, what he grew from the ground. God was not pleased with Cain's sacrifice, but God was pleased with Abel's sacrifice. What did Noah do whenever he came off the ark after being spared from the wickedness of the world? It says that he sacrificed and he sacrificed a lamb. What about Abraham as he went up the uh, mountain there, as he was taking Isaac up there? By the way, I believe that was the temple mount in Jerusalem, the future temple mount in Jerusalem. And so Abraham's going up the mountain. He's got the wood. They've got the, they've got the knife. They've got the fire for the wood. And Isaac looks at him, who's a very clever young man. He was probably no younger than 15. He might have been 25 or 30. But he at least was no younger than 14 or 15. And he says, Father, you know, here is what we need for worship, but we're missing something. He says, where is the lamb? You see, there was some element of this lamb that had something to do with connecting with God. And not just having a cute little lamb for a pet, Right? But it was the sacrificing of a lamb. Have y'all ever seen a lamb? Y'all, at my house right now, everybody thinks that little Frankie's the cutest thing you've ever seen in your life. If you don't know who little Frankie is, then count your blessings. But anyway, <laughs> little, I don't even think he's real. I said I'd never have a dog in the house, and, and I still don't. He's not a dog. He's got to be battery powered. He's so small. <laughs> little Frankie's the cutest little thing you've ever seen in your life to some people. Now, he's cute. I, I think he's really cute. But what if I went home tonight and I said, okay, Sister Abigail, sorry, we got to take little Frankie. We got to sacrifice him. Do you know the kind of fit that would probably be pitched in the crying in the morning? It, some of you may have a little favorite pet. You understand, this wasn't God saying, oh, get your little favorite pet and just take care of him. Everything will be fine. No, this was the bloody sacrifice of something that was very innocent and something that was very cute now it, it doesn't say sacrifice you know a full-grown uh you know lamb uh, excuse me a full-grown sheep it says sacrifice a lamb a baby that's something isn't it so whenever god comes to moses and he says i've got one last plague you think you've seen my power well now you're really you've seen the water turned to blood. You've seen the lice. You've seen the flies. You've seen the frogs. You've seen all this. And you can imagine Moses probably thinking, what's going to be next? And the Lord told Moses to take one of the cutest things that you've ever seen in your life. Take it up in the house for 14 days. Take care of it. Pet it. Feed it. Can you all imagine how, what those children of those houses went through? They pet and fed that little cute little lamb. And then on the 14th day, dad walks in. And he says, guys, i got to have him. And I'm going to tell you what, daddy didn't take him outside where nobody could see. They did it right there in front of everybody. I tell you, you've got a, you've got a bloody religion, let me tell you. And you better be thankful that you do. Because it was the blood of that cute little furry fluffy lamb 
that was taken and put on the doorposts of all of the Israelites. The Lord birthed a nation under the blood of a cute little furry fluffy lamb. And by the way, if you'll notice, every time the Lord refers to the sacrificing a lamb, he doesn't say lambs. He speaks of it in the singular, looking forward to a time when the singular lamb of God would make that sacrifice. There were thousands of lambs sacrificed in Israel, in Israel among the Israelites that night. But it was one lamb that went to the cross and paid for the sins of his people. So you want to know why you come out as a nation? You want to know how you come out as a holy nation of God? It's because the literal nation of God, nation of Israel, was born in one night because of the blood of the lamb. You see, I bet there were some tears shed by some little children that night when that cute little furry fluffy lamb that they'd been petting for 14 days was taken up by the arms of their father and a knife was driven into its heart or its throat was cut and blood began to spill in a basin. Oh, there was weeping, wasn't it? Child of God. If you'll weep over a cute little furry fluffy lamb, or if you'll weep and mourn and be emotional over a little Frankie, (laughs) or your little doggy, or your little caddy, or your little whatever you have, won't you look to the cross with me? If you'll weep over that animal, look at how they treated Christ like an animal. He was treated a million infinitely worse than what a little lamb was treated whenever he hung on the cross. And the purpose of him hanging on that cross as the sacrificial lamb of God was to pay for your filthy sins. I tell you, I love little Frankie and I love your little animals and I'll pet them and hug them all day long. (laughs) But your little animals or little Frankie have never and will never pay for one sin of mine. So I'm going to keep looking to the lamb of God on the cross. And you know what? I'm going to weep. Because when I see him hanging there, and I think about what he had to go through to pay for my filthy sins, I'm going to weep. I'm going to be like John in some ways. I weep that he had to do that. It's a mixture of of sorrow, but it's mixed with joy. Because I think if he hadn't done it, there's no blood of any lamb on the planet that would ever pay for my sins. As a matter of fact, they say that in the book of Hebrews. Paul says that. He says, not by the blood of bulls and goats, not by the blood of a lamb, but by the precious blood of Christ, the lamb of God. You see, the lamb is Jesus Christ. All those years... How many thousands of lambs not only were slain that night whenever they were born as a nation out of Egypt and led out of bondage and slavery, but through the years, how many millions, possibly billions, because they had a sacrifice going on every day. For years and decades and decades, the blood of the lambs flowed through the streets of Jerusalem. It flowed outside the tabernacle before the tabernacle, the temple was in Jerusalem. It flowed freely for all those years, pointing to the fact that none of those animals, none of the blood of those animals could ever pay for one single sin. But the blood of Christ, one sacrifice forever, he sits down on the throne of God, having paid for all of the sins of all of his chosen children. (laughs) And that's a lot of them, let me tell you. Little helpless, defenseless lamb. You understand maybe now a little bit. By the way, Isaiah, we need to talk about Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, where it says he's led as a lamb, dumb before his shearers. The lamb doesn't even cry. The lamb, as a matter of fact, I was talking to somebody about this recently, not from here, and they said, 
that their father related to them that when, when this person was a little girl, that their father had a lamb and he raised it up, you know, and got it up to be a sheep and were, was going to kill it for meat because they needed meat. <laughs> and her father related to her that one of the most disturbing things that he'd ever done, he was a farmer. Not much disturbs a farmer. <laughs> Just ask Brother Harold McCool when you get to heaven. <laughs> but he laid that lamb, that sheep, down on the chopping block, and, he said, and she said whenever he laid it down, it never moved, it never budged, never even raised its head. And he took his axe and he just chopped his head off, never moved. That's amazing, isn't it? The Son of God, the Lamb of God, he never flinched. He never moved. But remember what I told you, and we've got to close out, the lion is also a lamb. <laughs> How, how is he a lamb and a lion? And by the way, notice that nobody said, take your cute little fluffy dog, like little Frankie, or take your cute little cat, or your um, whatever that you think is cute. He didn't say take those animals. And he didn't say take a lion. He didn't say take a dinosaur. He didn't say take, you know, an ostrich, which is not a very sightful animal. You know, he didn't say take some other animal and sacrifice it. He said take a lamb. He was specific because it is the meekest of all creatures. And it will not fight back. And it can't fight back. <laughs> and by the way, we're compared to sheep. <laughs> That's very humbling, is it not? So he didn't say take a lion and lay a lion down and sacrifice. That lion would have fought tooth and nail. <laughs> but the, the lamb goes to the cross, doesn't give any resistance. But on the cross, I'm going to tell you what, there's a, there's a lamb there and a lion roared. He said several things on the cross, but three specifically I want you to notice that he cried out. You know, crucifixion is a suffocating death where you shouldn't even have any breath or, or voice to speak hardly as time goes on with the crucifixion. But at one point towards the end, near three o'clock, he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He cries out. And then he says at another point, John 19 and 30, that you're all very familiar with his old Baptist. It is finished. He'd finished the work. He'd finished the sacrifice. He cries out. The lion roars at that point. And then the last time the lion roars, he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. <laughs> and then he gives up the ghost. And the lamb dies. The lion dies. And your sins die. Praise God for that. But that's not the end of the roaring of the lion. You know, C.S. Lewis compared, used in his Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan the lion as a type of Christ in his writings. And there was one little interaction there, I think, between Lucy, the, Lucy Pevensey. There was one interaction there in which Lucy was a little afraid because here's this lion. And an inquiry was made, you know, is he, is, he, um, is he dangerous? Something along that line. I'm not getting exactly right, but is he dangerous? And it's like, no, he's not dangerous. But yeah, excuse me. She says, the response is, yes, he is dangerous. But is he good is the question. So if you're going to have a lion on your side, he's dangerous, but you sure want him to be good, don't you? <laughs> if a lion's going to be on your side, most lions aren't very good, though. They, they're always trying to tear and eat, eat people and eat creatures and such. Matter of fact, I had a friend in college who owned a lion. And we played football together on the football team, and it was in spring, and he didn't show up for practice one Sunday, uh, one afternoon in, in the spring. And... I saw him a few days later on campus, and he had this huge bandage on his arm. So what happened to you? I knew he had a lion for a pet. He said, man, my lion bit me almost all the way through the arm. <laughs> I was like, man, you need to get a different pet. <laughs> That's dangerous. 
If you're going to have a lion for a pet, you sure hope he's a good lion, don't you? But that lion is good and he is dangerous. He is the wild center of the universe and he's going to roar at least two more times. (laughs) One of those times, he's going to roar and he's going to call forth and all of the graves will open up and and the people of God will come forth. All people will come forth from the grave. And will be reunited with their bodies. And the the children of God will be sent into everlasting life. And the wicked ones will be sent to the lake of fire to pay for their sins forever. And he's going to roar one more time after that. The lion, the lamb is going to roar. And he's going to, I believe, split every atom in the universe Because there's the power of destruction in every atom in the universe. There's power of destruction in one atom, and they're floating around us right now. That's amazing. And that kind of power would be floating dormant right around. I believe the Lord's going to speak, and every atom's going to split, and this world is just going to melt. But do not be afraid, child of grace. When it melts, you won't be here. And it's not going to be because of some secret rapture. That's not what the Word of God teaches. It's going to be because of a very open and obvious roaring of a lion. (laughs) Of the lion, the the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb of God. It's going to be very open. It's going to be very obvious. And He's going to call His people from the grave. And then He's done with this world. He's done with it. And He's just going to melt it. He said, well, where are we going to live? He said, we're going to live in a new heavens and a new earth. (laughs) wherein dwelleth righteousness, where the tree of life will be easily obtained, accessible once again as Adam lost access to the tree of life all those millennia ago. It's going to all be restored. There'll be no weeping. There'll be no crying. There'll be no coronavirus. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no stomach virus. There'll be no sacrifice anymore. The Lord has finished that work as the Lamb of God on the cross of whenever He died and He's resurrected And he is the lion of the tribe of Judah forever and ever. Forever and ever. So do not fear. Do not fear. Do not weep as John wept and think it's all out of control and there's nobody that can handle this. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. And when you look at the lion of the tribe of Judah, you see a lamb as it had been slain. So the lion is the lamb and the lamb is the lion. There might be one or more here that would like to follow the lamb. (laughs) As John said, behold the Lamb of God. And the next thing you know, there were several people following the Lamb of God. And we give you that opportunity as we stand and sing some song.